good morning in town. Hope you're doing well. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and I also would like to welcome you to this first Sunday of Advent. Um, if you didn't grow up in a tradition that celebrated Advent or know really what we mean by that, um, kind of want to sew a couple of the pieces that you've already heard together. Um, first of all, Advent, again, a word that means coming. And so it is a time in which many Christians and many traditions have looked to Christmas and looked to the second coming of Jesus together. It's this moment in which we find great solidarity with the people of God in the Old Testament because there's a sense in which we, we have something they don't, right? We have Jesus. We know that the Messiah came. We know that there is something to celebrate and not just a someday to celebrate, but we, we've got a Christmas. And at the same time, the world still is not necessarily the way it's supposed to be. We still feel many of the same sorrows and places of brokenness and illness and hurt and disease and sadness and sin that they did. And so we hold these things together in this season of Advent. This year, our Advent series uh, of sermons is going to be called Welcoming the Coming King. And what I want to do this morning, this is going to be a little bit of a different sermon in the sense I don't want you to get worried. We're not going to have the actual ser- uh, scripture of the sermon come in until about halfway through. So don't go, oh, Steve, this is the longest sermon introduction you've ever given in your life. We're going to be here for three hours. No, don't worry about it. Um, we, uh, Jimmy picked out this beautiful painting uh, by the French artist Tissot. Um, we're going to mention that in a second, so I wanted to go ahead and show you the color version of this beautiful painting. Tissot is known for his realism, um, and specifically his realism with individuals from other cultures, which was not something that many European artists in the 19th century were known for or used to. Um, they often would delve into really bad stereotypes that would appeal to European buyers and also to a European sense of, of superiority and fascination at the same time. But instead, Tussauds is beautifully um, faithful uh, and dignifying to people. So we're going to mention him in a second, so I wanted to put this beautiful piece of artwork up there. What I'd like to do, though, is unpack for you, before we actually get into what we're going to see this morning, the language of welcoming the coming king the idea of king and of kingdom in Scripture. Especially if you're from here, if you're from America, you are not used to royal language. Even if you think you are, even if you, um, even with sadness, also had a great fascination at the passing of Elizabeth II and subsequent crowning of King Charles, uh, whether or not you um, are just kind of watching the crown right now or maybe have experience in another country with royalty. The concept of monarch, largely, the concept of, the concept of king, largely, here in a modern age, is something that uh, does not have much of the same meaning as it did in the time of Scripture. Right? We live in a modern society where, save for a few um, dictatorships or um, certain religiously bound countries, largely the idea of a 
uh, total regime, um, all power being continually focused into one person and one family, a dynasty, doesn't exist anymore. Even in the places where it does exist, those places exist in a wider modern political culture, which means we have international groups like the United Nations, like NATO and others that mean that the, the, the age-old idea of might makes right, that power and focused power and the boundaries between nations and the relationships, even economic relationships between nations, again, are wrapped up in the personality and communication of this singular individual. Those things don't exist anymore. Because of that, I think sometimes even when we read our, our Advent readings and the Christmas story, we read this language of kingship that's found throughout Scripture. It can maybe fall a little bit like fire falling on a wet blanket um, for us because it just doesn't have the same power that it would have had for the original recipients of Scripture. Because whether we're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, these individuals did live in a society in which kings or Caesars or pharaohs literally did control every aspect of life. And on a whim, a regime change or a bad day could mean life or death for you or for your people. Furthermore, the idea of a nation having history would also be always in flux. You might be a part of a nation that has existed in a certain aspect for thousands of years, and in another aspect, you are a part of a nation that has grown from small to large and small to large with every single political or military campaign. Or a single marriage could change everything. A single toothache could change everything. Ultimately, the recipients of Scripture received a word from God, the history of God, communication from our Creator using language they were familiar with. And so, from the very beginning of Scripture, what we get is a story of a king and a kingdom. I want to tell you a little bit of that story before we get, as I said, into our text this morning. Obviously, right, creation begins with the act of creation. God makes his world. Even that telling in Genesis chapter 1 is laden with royal terminology. We talk about God being sovereign over everything. We talk about God having reign over everything. Well, what does a king do? Whereas Genesis 2 will later emphasize the artistic ability of God, his creativity, Genesis chapter 1 begins with God into a chaotic world saying, let there be light. Let there be a world. Let there be plants, animals, fish, creation. These are declarative works. I grew up watching the old um, wonderful and bad in equal measure biblical epics of the 1950s and 60s, um, and some of you might remember the ancient movie The Ten Commandments and Yul Brynner who 
uh, wonderfully does Pharaoh in that has a statement, let it be written, so let it be done. There's a sense that all he has to do is say something, and his very words are law. His very words are chiseled into stone. We see Genesis 1 as a picture of a king exerting his sovereignty, speaking to existence, and existence coming to life. Further, the Israelites, largely, likely the Israelites following the Exodus, who would have received the book of Genesis first, would also have tuned in to what God did with his creation. You see, if, if you were living in, in a village somewhere, and, and I've told some of my youth this before, um, if you were living in a village somewhere, and let's say that village was conquered by a king and became a part of an empire, the king would do two things to bring that place under the, the, the auspices of the empire besides military rule and that sort of thing. One, the king would want you to know who he is. So he would put images of himself throughout that new space. Every single time a new pharaoh or a new Caesar came up, we would get new money. We, they would get new money. They would get new statues. They would get new declarations. It would be as if we minted new quarters every single time a new president came out because there weren't videos to know what he looked like. But not only that, they would also send someone with agency, with power, uh, an ambassador or a, a viceroy, somebody who could act on behalf of the king, someone who could wield power in that space. So you would grow up, if you were a little boy growing up in main town empire, and you are wondering what your king is like, you could just look over at your money or look over at the statue. You would see this awesome decked out hero dripping in gold. And you'd be like, oh, my king's awesome. And furthermore, you would live life under a governmental system that made it feel like the king was right there because his rule was law by way of these viceroys, these ambassadors, this governmental system that was in place. Well, what does God do in Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let us give him dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals of the land. Both and in the same action, this sense that God, the king, fills his sovereign place with everything he's made, but also with those specifically in his likeness who bear his agency, his authority, to act on his behalf as little gods, if you will, little kings in his world. Now, in that light, with that mindset, let's keep going. How do we read Genesis chapter 3? Well, some of you know Genesis chapter 3 is the story of Satan, the garden, the temptation of Adam and Eve, and ultimately the fall of man, which many theologians would say not really a fall, that's sort of like an accident, but a rebellion. 
mankind rebelling against God. Well, that language of rebellion likewise is political language. This isn't an accident. It's not a tripping. It is an invasion. Creation is invaded, and then its peoples rebel against their king. And so what you get in Scripture, moving throughout really the rest of Scripture, are two parallel stories. Two parallel stories in which the kings of this world fill creation with stories, counter-stories, histories, ways of thinking about existence other than that which God originally intended. At the same time, also throughout Scripture, what you see really with the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament is God kind of countering the counter-stories. This idea of the, the people of God, sort of as this tiny microcosm of the way it was supposed to be. The king on the throne of Israel, not perfect, not the Messiah himself, and yet somehow this ideal Israelite that was supposed to show all the rest of the nations of the world how things were supposed to be. This is why, by the way, we're not going to have time in this series to get into all of the facets of kingdom language in Scripture, but this is why once you actually get to the ministry of Jesus, the language of kingdom can actually get a little bit confusing because in certain places, we're going to hear language, if we're reading Scripture, of people saying the kingdom is coming, but wait, God already has a kingdom. Other places, we're going to hear language saying the kingdom is already here. But wait, didn't that just say the kingdom is coming? Yes, both and. These parallel stories run throughout the rest of Scripture so that Jesus can show up as God the Father's main ambassador, his final and fullest image. And he can say the kingdom of God is coming and is also right here. But he can also say every inch of land is his, and it has never been otherwise. Satan can be called the prince of the powers of the air, and the, the nations of the world can kind of be called rulers of this world by the apostles. And at the same time, we can also say that God has never stopped ruling over his creation. He's never lost his sovereignty. We can celebrate a kingdom that came with Jesus. We can look forward to a kingdom that is still coming. And Jesus can even describe his ministry and then the life of the church as the kingdom of God advancing. You see how these parallel stories kind of work and weave throughout Scripture together, depending on who's emphasizing what. I'm going to ask Jim to come up here and read for us our passage and as he does so, I want to make one last point, and that's this. Your theology, your theology is going to, and the theology of everyone in the world, is going to determine which of these two stories we listen to. 
Furthermore, however, it's even going to determine how we lean into which story we ultimately decide upon. Jim, read for us, please. From Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray. Holy God, oh, that we could be like Mary and have such longing and such excitement as your com- at your coming. And yet greater than Mary is here. Jesus, you, you unite us to yourself and you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you. Would you bless the preaching of your word? In your name, amen. All right, two stories, parallel stories, ideas of kingdom, things weaving in and out together. That's the soup we're swimming in this morning. The issue is it was also the soup that Mary was swimming in as well. Sometimes we can assume, just because Scripture is Scripture, that individuals within Scripture aren't really people. They're like concepts of people, and they didn't exist in a real world and have real things going on in their lives. They didn't have a real history. And Mary, likewise, we, Mary just kind of pops up, right? We eventually will get a genealogy of her um, and her as connected to Jesus. We know that she does come from 
um, the priestly line, um, the line of Aaron. And so there, there's a religious heritage in certain respects in her family, but we don't know much else about her. Further, we do know this, and I realize this is not incredibly easy to read. It's okay. I don't really need you to, to squint and read so much as I want you to pay attention to what's not there. This is a chart of the history of Scripture um, as connected to the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see here creation, prehistory, um, but eventually around the year 200 BC or so, we begin to see the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, the people that we read about in Genesis 12 and onward. And from there, we see kind of the history of Israel moving forward. Um, I really love that this author has actually put some of the major world empires there at the bottom that were around and influencing during this time. But the thing I want you to pay attention is the gap. This is called the intertestamental period, the period of time between the Old and the New Testaments, where while there were things going on in Jewish history at this time, um, I don't at all want to belittle that, the reality nonetheless was that we do not see, even in the midst of that intertestamental Jewish history, the overt and prophetic acts of God with his people. We don't see what we see all before, which is God sending specific individuals, whether it was patriarchs or judges or kings or prophets, with an undeniable word from God for his people. It is, it is as if after the, the book of Joel or so there around 400 BC that God was silent for hundreds of years. It felt like God was silent. Now, I don't know about you. you know, we, we live in a little bit of a different age, right? Because we received God's word. We also have his Holy Spirit. And so I think we have a very different relationship with the silence of God. Sometimes we feel it acutely, um, but other times we don't. But the nature of God and his presence is not something that we necessarily feel as a global people of God or not, because God is at work all over the world. But can you imagine for a moment, imagine if nothing happened for hundreds of years. Everyone felt far away from God for hundreds of years. Everyone wondered what God was going to do for hundreds of years. Everyone was thinking God had forgotten them. Imagine how it would feel to be a part of the people of God if that were the case. I told you theology is going to determine which of these stories that you gravitate towards. Well, there's another way of saying that because I think for many of us, theology sounds more like either a Bible study or a seminary class that it does our real-life experience so let's just replace theology with our story. Whatever story you gravitate towards, whatever 
uh, mindset you have, the various cultural streams that you come from and live in, those are going to affect which of these two groups you gravitate towards and how you lean into those things. This actually still exists today for us, even those of us who follow Jesus. Think about this. If you mostly gravitate towards um, a story that says, yes, God's on his throne, but man, the, world, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and, and it makes me nervous and anxious, and we've got to do something about it. Well, it makes sense why a number of people so give themselves to culture warrior places and to feeling like we've got to solve this issue. People on the right and the left, right? Christians on the right and the left who believe very much that we've got to do something to stop the darkness. On the other hand, right, you've got a lot of believers who says, God's got this. God's got this so much that really church is just about spiritual things, and it's about my relationship with Jesus, and it's about worship, and it's about what happens on a Sunday morning, and it never touches the real world. Our story affects how we lean into this, and it affected Mary. It affected Mary because Mary grew up in this intertestamental period, she would have grown up in an age of anxiety where more and more people were grasping for more and more solid stories to follow. A number of her peers, those growing up in this age, would hold on to a story that took this idea of the Messiah, that God would come and save his people, and made it very, very political. They would say God's Messiah has a one-to-one correlation with whatever nation is oppressing us, which by the time of Mary would have been Rome and the Greco-Roman connections that um, existed at the time. And so this is why you get groups like the zealots who will pop up and say, if we can only defeat the Romans, then things will be okay. This is why they looked for a king, a Messiah. It's why Herod was scared. Because Jesus, to, to Herod, those who you know where we're going with the Christmas story eventually, right? To, to Herod, Jesus was... Chuck Norris and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Patton all rolled into one, right? Like, this is going to be a superhuman, awesome guy who's going to come and he's going to take my place. On the other hand, there were lots of people who were in the other place of story as well, who believed that God had provided so much of a counter story that we are going to go up into the mountains and get away and live holy lives. Or maybe we're not going to go up into the mountains and live holy lives. We're going to live holy lives right here, and we're going to throw it in your face. And we're going to remind all of you sinners that if you're just as holy as we are, then the Messiah will say, oh, everything's right and good and fruitful to come. I give you all of that background because what absolutely blows my mind 
is this? And if I had known, um, I'm actually sorry that I didn't put this together in my own mind. You know, sometimes you're in worship pastor mode versus preaching pastor mode. Um, and I didn't connect the fact that, Lori, you are going to be presenting today and um, be prayed for today. If you remember the picture of young lives, most scholars, based on just the, the culture of Israel at the time, believe Mary was somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16 right now when, when we're reading this passage. We're not talking about a 30 or 40 or 50-year-old who has been through 27 million Bible studies and who has the maturity of years that when an angel pops up, there's suddenly a, oh, holy one, let me connect with you spiritually and say things that will eventually go on Christmas cards. In fact, we get a version of that a few verses before when her cousin-in-law, Zachariah, who is a priest, who is a worker in the temple, who is older and does have all the theological knowledge, an angel comes and visits him and tells him about John the Baptist, and he gives like a what the heck and gets put mute for months. Instead, we get a 13-year-old girl here who is going to respond, yes, with, with, with appropriate freaked outness, right? An appropriate confusion, and yet is also going to say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What Mary picks up on is that Scripture does not put a war between all of these perspectives that I've shared with you this morning. Why? Because in actuality, this is, has always been and will always be God's world, and it is, has been, and will always be until Jesus comes back, a place of strife and conflict. Gabriel's words to Mary here actually are laden with references to and allusions to the entire history of how God has always operated with his people. When he says uh, most high, when he refers to the son of the most high, it's specifically an allusion to Daniel and to Melchizedek from Genesis. When he talks about the Lord God will give to him the child, the throne of his father David, who will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end, is a complete fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, that Jesus is going to be the David who doesn't screw up. The greater Solomon, he's going to be the one who visits Abraham. He's going to be the one who rescues Daniel out of exile and puts to death empires forever. There is a sense in which Mary beautifully, I, as a family's pastor, I wish I knew Mary's parents. What did they do? Because there is a sense that even at 13, Mary recognizes that leaning into either one of these extremes is not what God intended. That what God has actually done is to say, I am coming and I am going to put sin and death and disease and Satan away forever. And I'm going to do that in ways that are both physical and eternal. 
in ways that are both tangible and spiritual. So much so that when we think about the reign of Jesus forever, of a kingdom with no end, it becomes the answer to all of the things that we struggle with, that we're anxious about. I don't know about you. I don't know what your um, biggest anxiety is. For some of us, they're very, very personal ones, right? It's our children. It's our parents. It's our own health. For some of us, it's very um, political ones or cultural ones. Sadly, I think when, when, we, when we sit down with brothers and sisters and we get into places where we have different needs and different anxieties, when the fall hits us in different places, we can actually find conflict between us because we're like, you're not emphasizing that one enough and you don't care about me enough and so on and so forth. But Jesus is the answer to all of these things. He came for justice and for forgiveness. He came for hope and for diversity. He came for healing and he came for unity. And Mary gets it all. My question this morning is this. What do we get? And I want to address just two things really quick. What do we get? Our story shapes our longing. Our story is going to shape how we express our longing and what we long for. I've kind of already covered what we long for, this idea of what actually is our hope. What's that existential thing that gives us a sense that everything's going to be okay? For some of us, it's financial, and we watch the stock market index. For some of us, it's finally buying a house and feeling like we're, we're out from under a certain payment. For some of us, it is cultural, and it's about a certain president being in or out of power. For some of us, it is watching our son or daughter graduate. We feel like we've arrived. What we value, our story, is going to tell us what we're longing for God or somebody to do. But it's also going to tell us how we're going to act in the midst of that longing. And that's what I want to leave you with and ask you about this morning as we move into the table here in a moment. Not just what are you longing for. I, that is a question, and it's a real question. For many of us, it's actually hard because we want to give the Sunday school answer that says, I long for Jesus. And then there's the heart idol question that says, actually, I long for X and Y and Z. And the reality is, that's a schizophrenic jump back and forth that happens in our minds 20 times a second. It's not always as fruitful as we wish it could be to say, this is my idol or I'm a Jesus follower. But what I'm interested in this morning is in light of a more fully orbed story, in light of a Jesus who comes to make all things new, to give you hope in every area of your life, to bring healing and wholeness to all the issues of this world, 
What I want to ask you is this. What do you do with that? How are you longing? How are you expressing that longing? I love Mary because Mary is greatly troubled. There is a sense of anxiety with Mary. She's a real person. Yet also, Mary is going to do all of the things that just make her this wonderful person. She is going to listen. She is going to seek out Elizabeth, one of the closest people she has. She's going to get confirmation. They're going to pray together and worship God. We're going to realize eventually in a couple of verses when we hear Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, that, man, this 13-year-old girl actually has an awesome set of theological things going on in her head. She loves God so much and sees where he's going. But then the reality is this. Mary is also going to go be a pregnant teenager. And any of you who have been pregnant, it's hard. Those of you who haven't been pregnant, it's hard. But biologically, it's hard to carry a baby. She's going to endure the hardship of having a child without yet having a husband. There's going to be ridicule. There's going to be poverty. What I wonder is this. If our story is actually this fully orb story, and we are looking forward to a real, awesome, incredible, holistic coming of Jesus that makes all things new, can we be encouraged to live in both of these worlds as well, to find endurance for honest, physical, existential hardships that just are annoying and don't feel spiritual at all? And can we find encouragement to believe that because our Jesus actually cares about all of that stuff, that we actually can find hope in his scriptures, in prayer, in worship, that these are not things that we just go, oh, I hope that makes me feel better because I have to go back home and deal with my hurting kids, or oh, I have to go back and go visit my sick parent, or oh, I've got to get back to work on Monday morning. The gospel is relevant to your life, not in some self-helpy way, but in a real, honest, this is the kingdom way. And Mary saw it, and she knew it, and she lived it. Now, here's the great thing. Mary was a 13-year-old girl. And as much as I actually think she's really awesome and maybe as an overcorrection to Protestantism and Catholicism, we don't actually talk about Mary much. She's awesome. But who made Mary Mary? God did. The same Holy Spirit that's inside you and me. It's easy sometimes to hear a, hey, let's get excited for Advent sermon and, and let it wash over us culturally. 
It's another thing to go, I can do that because of Jesus. You can be like Mary because ultimately being like Mary wasn't the point. You can catch the vision that Mary had for what God was going to do. And it can drive you to worship and repentance and life in him forever.